Welcome to episode 139 of the Women of the Military podcast. Last year, I started a tradition that the week of Father's Day, I would interview a male veteran who was a dad to get their perspective on the podcast because my dad played a really pivotal role in my life and I think dads can play really pivotal roles in their daughters' lives, so I thought it would be fun to... Save one episode a year for a male veteran to share his experience of military service and give advice to women who are considering joining from a male's point of view. So this year I connected with David Trentholm and he has been very supportive of all the work that I've been doing for the blog, the podcast, and Girls Guide to the Military. And so I reached out to him and asked him if he would be on the podcast and he said yes and was just so excited to be a part of it. So I'm excited to share his interview about his time in the Navy and what he's doing today. So let's get started. Season 3 of the Women of the Military podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, David. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. So, yeah, I like doing one podcast episode with a male veteran, for Father's Day, I started it last year with Ben Coy, and I'm excited to continue the tradition this year. That's awesome, because I feel honored that you would even, you know, I, I follow everything you do, and I, I love how supportive you are of, of women in the military, and just even be thought of to be interviewed by you is, is a huge honor. Well, I, I really appreciate every way you support me and the work that you're doing just to help veterans and and the conversations that we get to have on LinkedIn. So it was an easy choice. It was an easy choice with Ben. It was an easy choice with you. So thank you for everything that you do. And let's get started with why did you decide to join the military? So why I joined uh, was, for the most part, pretty simple. Uh, I grew up, you know, lower middle class. Um, none of my family had ever really gone to college. They were all blue collar workers. And, you know, I looked around and saw the people my dad worked for, you know, with the big, nice vehicles, you know, working in the air conditioning. I was like, you know what, I want, I want to do that. I want to be in business one day. And, and so to me, that was going to college. It was never really encouraged. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't athletic enough to get a scholarship. So I did the next best thing is I enlisted in the Navy uh, when I was 17 years old. So you enlisted into the Navy. What year was that? This was 1995. So about two months after I graduated from high school, I went to boot camp. I spent a little over four years enlisted. During that time, I did really well. I got picked up for an officer program. And, you know, my dream came true. The Navy was sending me to college to get my degree. So I ended up going to Florida A&M and Florida State, earned my degree. And while I was there, you know, job placement, they're like, hey, do you want to, you know, be on submarines? No. Do you want to drive ships? No. Do you want to fly in the front of the backseat of an aircraft? Yeah, that sounds really cool because those other ones suck. 
I was selected as a naval flight officer, and I, after you know two years in flight school, I got to fly in the back of the P three Orion uh, for the last I don't know fifteen or so years of my career. So, how did you get selected for the program when you were enlisted to become an officer? So, the Navy, you know, it's changed over the years. I, I they had several different officer programs. Uh, I applied for at the time was called Boost Broaden Officer opportunity selection and training. And so what that was at the time was a, uh, they would send you to a Navy prep school. It was more geared towards people that had no college experience and struggled through high school per se. You know, and and it was, it was a one year of college prep, which really helped me. Uh, I struggled through the college prep classes, but when I actually got to college, that preparation made it so that I went from being a C student at the prep school to an A student in college. Wow. And so did they pay your whole tuition and give you a stipend through college? So back in the day, now it's gotten better now. Back in the day, they had two different programs or or ways they did it. Either they kicked you off active duty and they paid for your school or you stayed on active duty, but you had to use your GI Bill, you know, to help pay for your college. And so I was kicked off active duty for four years. So I got a scholarship and like a $300 a month stipend, you know, so thank God I had the GI Bill. Uh, I had, I earned a lot of grants, scholarships. I took out some loans, unfortunately, but it was kind of interesting because I was making more money as a college student than I was as an E4 with, you know, less than four years in the Navy. I've been working on, you know, I'm working on a book and I'm working on the Girls Guide stuff. And the one thing I find is like the officer programs, like they're always changing and the rules are always changing. So I just kind of do it with like a broad brush stroke. And I'm like, there's a program out there, become an officer, go figure out what it's called and what the different benefits are. Because, yeah, it's always changing and like you never, it's just like a moving target. It's not something that you can always talk about. And then tomorrow it could change. So, so that makes a lot of sense. And it was interesting because when uh, the results came out, I was only considered an alternate. So they had the, you know, 300 that are approved and they had, you know, 50 or so that were alternates. And, you know, a month or two before the program started up, I got a phone call from, you know, higher Navy training headquarters. and like, hey, do you still want to do this? I was like, yeah. And I went and did it. And, and the, the rest is history. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And based on you, you joined in 95 and then you were in for four years and then you did college for four years. Were you in college when September 11th happened? I was actually in my Naval science class when the first plane hit the, the tower one. And by near the end of the class is when the second plane hit the second tower. And at that point it was very scary, very weird. We all got sent home from school. Classes were canceled for about a day or two. My phone was ringing off the hook constantly. Like, are you going to be activated? Are you going back enlisted? Are you going to, you know, what, what could happen? Are we going to war? And, you know, and, and there was actually some precedence because the RTC unit I was at, I don't know, back way in world war two or something actually got activated in the middle of college or something like that. There's some weird stories. So there was some fear, but for the most part, I told him, like, look, you know, we're in the pipeline. I don't think I'm going to war unless they institute a draft, you know, because they the Navy's, you know, put so much money into me. They want me to finish this program so I can get back out to the active duty Navy. So, yeah. So from 99 until 2003, roughly, I was at Florida A&M or Florida State uh, full time. And then after that, 2003 to 2005, I was in flight school. And then after that, uh, you know, for the next 14 years, I was flying pretty much all the time in a P-3 Orion or on an aircraft carrier, helping launch and recover aircraft. Or I, I spent a couple of years on amphibs, you know, working with the Marines while they were flying, you know, and being their support. Sounds like a crazy adventure. I get really stuck on September 11th. But 
before September 11th and then when you went back in a few years later, was the Navy different or were there specific things that you noticed or was it just that we were at war and so that aspect was different? So it was it was definitely different. You know, the, the security postures on bases were very relaxed prior to 9-11. Like, you know, the uh, there was bars and clubs uh, that were, you know, the E clubs, the O clubs were a more happening place where people out in town would come on base, you know, and party, you know, and, and there was very little rules. And then all of a sudden, you know, right after 9-11, it was they can't be on past 10 o'clock. And then next thing you know, they're not allowed on at all. And then on top of that, they started putting fences and security systems all around bases because for that, you know, a lot of the bases, they were kind of open and didn't have fences to keep people out. Um, You know, then after that, you know, security was a big thing. And then you could see the mindset of people because, you know, before that we were in peace, we go on deployments, we would do a little power projection. Hey, here's an aircraft carrier. We're in town. You know, you guys be cool. But now all of a sudden it's like, no, uh, right as 9-11 happened, there was an aircraft carrier that was just coming, was just about to leave from deployment. 9-11 happened, they got turned right around and they ended up doing like a 10 month, almost 11 month deployment, which is, you know, unusual for the Navy. The Navy is usually really good about six to nine month deployment cycles. Yeah. So they were headed home and then they turned them around and they were gone for almost a year after already being gone. Yeah, so that that caused a lot of a uh, lot of uncertainty, a lot of change, a lot changing, you know, the op- operation tempo. So you know, it was a lot more relaxed. You know, and that we went from having like one aircraft carrier maybe in the in the Persian Gulf to all of a sudden we've got two, if not three, and that was a high op tempo for about the, at least the next ten to twelve years. Like when you were back in, it was all high op tempo. Yeah, I, I spent a good majority of my career in the desert, either. Flying um, out of Djibouti, Africa, or Bahrain. So I flew a lot of flights over Somalia, a lot of them over Iraq or Syria. You know, so flying over hotspots and, and looking for targets or, or doing convoy escorts for troops on the ground. Wow. And for the Navy, do they have like a pretty consistent like six months home, six months gone type of schedule or does it change? So the model for the Navy, which is different than like the Army, which it always blew me away how they would be gone for 18 months and then come home. You know, we were even even in the middle of the height of the wars, you know, as long as nothing crazy happened, you were typically deployed for six months and then you were home for 18 months. You know, you would calm down, you know, ramp back up and then be be uh, what we call on the ready. So. You weren't you weren't supposed to deploy, but if you know things happen in the world, you could be deployed right away. And that was, for the most part, give or take, was was always a cycle. You know, in peacetime and in wartime. So outside of the craziness of you know 9/11 actually happening, that that's always been been really good about the Navy is peacetime, wartime, deployment cycles are the same. Unlike what I saw with my friends in the Army, who in a four-year tour they spent three years, you know, either in Afghanistan or Iraq. All right. Yeah, I've interviewed people and they would go for a year and then come home for like three or four months and they'd be like, okay, you're going here. And they're like, I just got back. And we're like, so? And I've I've heard lots of stories where the Air Force has like very, like the bucket thing where, you know, you're, and depending on your job, what bucket you land in and all these, and every time your bucket changes, because I was CE, civil engineer, and so the buckets were like changing and we were getting like more, and they had like all these briefings about how the high the office tempo was changing and everyone you knew what was coming because you knew when it was your turn to be on and when to be ready and 
Now, I mean, that being said, even though we had that cycle, like you talked about being surge ready, we had some people that they would be gone for six months, come home for a month, be gone for another two or three months, be home for six months, and then could be gone another six months. So there was some high op tempos. And like the last command I was at right before I retired, we had a three months home, three months gone rotation. And we do that for two years, uh, just because we were a small specialized unit and and we were a high, high in demand. So... But we all all knew going into this, going to that command, that that was what was going to happen. And it actually was was, uh, very enjoyable because of mission satisfaction. Is there any deployment that like stuck out that you went on that you want to talk about or any challenge that you experienced while you were in the Navy? Oh, there's there's so many great deployment stories. You know, I I I was flying out of Bahrain and we got the call that, Hey, you have to stand up an entirely new detachment site in Insulik, Turkey, you know, because we were trying to fly from the South to go all the way up to the Northern Syria. And it was taking four hours to fly up there. Hey, guess what? If we take off out of Insulik, Turkey, we're right in the border. We're right there for 30 minutes. We can give them, you know, nine, 10 hours of flight time, you know? So that was a huge accomplishment going up there, working with the air force, working with the Turkish government, you know, pretty much, getting flying on a skeleton crew, you know, until we could get the, the establishment fully set up was an amazing accomplishment and, and the mission success. And we were getting a lot of feedback because some of the missions we do, we just kind of sit on our target and look at it and like, we're collecting information, but we don't know what we're really doing. That's, that's where the, uh, you know, the, the, the guys with the big brains or the Intel weenies put together all their magic and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to send soft forces or we'd watch an Air Force B-1B come in, you know, and start bombing ISIS. And I was like, well, we know our, our, our work is being done well. And then one of my last deployments I was on was actually one of my wor- most rewarding. I was on the Iwo Jima. So it's a amphibious uh, assault ship. There's, you know, 1500 Navy, another 1500 Marines. And we were off the coast of Libya for almost six months straight. There, after Gaddafi had fallen, the government kind of gone into chaos. And guess what? ISIS had come in and created a stronghold. So there was an entire city that was completely taken over by ISIS. And over a six month period between taking out their their vehicles, they actually had tanks and stuff, you know, taking out their forces. And it was all air support from the Marines and ground support from the Libyan uh, national government at that time. After six months, literally watching, we, we did a day where it was like 18 hours straight of bombing. Um, just going after every target we could find. We had a lull for a day. And then the next day they started bombing in the morning and literally the Libyan ground forces came out and said to the, to the uh, ISIS members like, Hey, you saw us level an entire city block, you know, two days ago, we're about to do the same thing to you right now. If you don't surrender and actually got to watch on video as they came out, surrendered, gave up, put their hands up, you know, and, and liberating a town where over, you know, 900 ISIS members were taken care of, not a single civilian casualty. And and that night we had a uh, a WebEx or a Zoom with uh, our American counterparts on the ground, and they brought in a bunch of Libyans that were so appreciative of everything we'd done. You know, just the mission accomplishment of freeing a town from ISIS was just amazing. And and I I didn't get to fly in those, but what I did is I coordinated all the flying with Africom, UCOM, Air Force Chaos. Uh, the AOCs, you know, and, and making sure all the things were done so that the guys could just go up and do their jobs, you know, taking care of all the diplomatic stuff and and, and watching what we did in six months was, was just amazing. Yeah, that's a really cool story and not one that you hear very often because the media doesn't cover 
stories like that. And I mean, just that you were there in the time and you could like see the impact. Like one of the hardest parts of my deployment was I was there for nine months and like felt like we didn't really get anything done. And then we just left and I guess who knows what happened after that because we didn't have contact with the Afghans and, and the teams behind us. It keep kept rotating, but like you were there and you got to see everything that happened and and even see the people who are so appreciative of what you did. Yeah, that was that was huge actually seeing that and then, you know, explaining that to the people on the ship because you got people that are just serving lunch, you know, cleaning up stuff, doing maintenance, you know, they have no no visibility any of this stuff and and once we explained to them what they were going on, you could see, you know, the extra pep in their step. Uh they're like, "Oh, wow, we're actually freeing people uh you know and you, you would see this on occasion like they would they would be able to free some women and children uh you know and, and the, you didn't get much of the news about this because we had no ground forces it was all it was all marine aircraft going in taking care of taking care of our enemies with the libyan ground forces and because there's no ground forces you know you really didn't hear much we also had no casualties because there was no ground forces. Now, I, I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure there probably were some casualties from the Libyan ground forces, but still, it was, it was an amazing time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you don't have people out on the ground, then it's kind of hard to get photos and the reporting, and so that makes a lot of sense. But it's just kind of cool to hear that, like, um, the American military is doing something like that to support people who need our help and and defeating ISIS. So it's like a win-win of what the military was made to do. So that's really cool. So I want to talk because we're talking about Father's Day. When did you start your family while you were in the military or after you left or when did that all happen? So I started, my, my son was born back in 2001 while I was in college. So I'm off active duty, you know, Poor college student, you know, my fiance got pregnant. We got married, you know, about six months later after he was born. And that's when I started my family. And about four years later, right after, you know, I'm in the middle of flight school, which flight school for me was probably the hardest time of my life. I am, I'm not somebody that can just read something and root memorize it. I, I've, I'm, I've got a, I've got a, I'm a monkey skills person. I've got to put my hands on it. I just can't read it and, and know it. And so that was very hard for me at times. And so my daughter was born 2005, right as I'm finishing up flight school uh, and right to get to my first operational command uh, and get, you know, doing workups, learning my job, becoming qualified and getting prepared for my first deployment. Yeah. So what was it like to be a dad in the military, especially with a high ops tempo job that had you coming and going? So it was not easy, and I could have never done it without my wife, uh, my wife Danielle. Of you know, we've been married almost 20 years now. Thank God she's an independent person because Murphy's Law happened every single time I deployed. The minute I left, the washer broke, you know, the stove broke, the car, you know, broke. My my wife got rear-ended probably three times sitting at a stoplight, you know. And at one point, she fainted picking up my ch- my kids from the daycare because she was just trying to be superwoman and, and doing both mom and dad's job. But every time I was home, I tried to make the best of it. My, my son started soccer probably when he was four. I uh, immediately became an assistant coach to help out. And I loved it so much that I, I was his head coach for like the next five years in soccer, you know, and, and doing as many school functions. My kids have been, uh, 
homeschooled almost their entire lives. And so they do a lot of recitals and music and and, and, and different types of events. And I made it a priority to be as much as possible. You know, I made some mistakes with my son because when I was a young officer, I, I made mistakes of, of putting the Navy before my family. And after a couple of years, somebody sat me down and said, hey, guy, you know, the Navy's not forever, but your family is. And so I made it a, a, a thing to make sure that I never did that again. So my son is now 19, 20. He's about to graduate with his associates from, from uh, college. My daughter is 15 and I'm still playing some softball and that's her schedule and her soccer schedule. My schedule and her schedule have conflicted. And in the past, I made the mistake of, hey, you know, Danielle, you take Sean to the sports game. I'm going to go play my sport. And I made sure I didn't make those mistakes again. And I prioritized my daughter's soccer over my uh, softball. So that you could be there for her games and be involved. And Yep. Yep. I, I mean, it was as much as I could. I did as, did as much as I could for my son. But like I said, I made some mistakes here and there and I learned from them. And I, I refused to repeat them, you know, with my daughter. Yeah. And... Military kids, it's April when we're recording this, and military kids are so resilient in their life. And sometimes I feel like they have this like weird view of the world because I'll ask my kids something and I'll be like, that's normal. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> so did they have any trouble with like moving or you being gone and coming home? So actually, our story is a little bit different than the average because my kids moved to Jacksonville, Florida back in 2005, 2006, and they never moved again. So how did we accomplish that? Well, guess what? Dad moved. So I did three geo bachelor tours in my naval career. And so if those that don't understand what a geo bachelor tour is, it's where the family stays one place. And I'm geographically a bachelor away from my family. So I spent one stint in Norfolk for two years, another one for two and a half years. And while my family stayed in Jacksonville, Florida, the first time I was gone in that two years, I was on an aircraft carrier. And that one was probably out to sea, either doing workups or two, two different deployments, 20 out of 24 months. So my opportunities to get home were not that great, but every every opportunity I was home, every long weekend, you know, I was I was home. It was to the point where when we were coming home from deployment, my aircraft carrier was going back to Norfolk, but some of our sister ships were going back to Mayport. I was able to work with my, my boss and say, hey, I want to jump on that ship, go home, you know, spend time with my family, you know, my vacation time, instead of having to go all the way back to Norfolk, flying down, you know, wasting an extra day or two here, there. So, you know, my command worked with me and, and got me back to Mayport. Uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, my wife and kids picked me up from the ship. Uh, you know, so it was it was awesome event. And then the second time I was in Norfolk, I was there for two and a half years, but I was only deployed six months out of two and a half years, roughly. And so Norfolk's about a 10 hour drive or a luckily they had NALO, um, which is the uh, the civilian military flights. They had a direct flight that would go from Jackson from Norfolk to Jacksonville, down to Cuba, back to Jacksonville, up to Norfolk. So I would get, I think it was $12 round trip flights on a 45 minute flight hop, uh, you know. So I, I would spend every three day, four day, and occasionally I'd just take vacate, leave time and, and come home for five days. So there's there's times I was driving home three weekends a month and that's a 10 hour drive each way, but it was worth it. At least it's like straight down I-95. It's like, 
once you get to I-95, you're like, and we're almost home. Oh, yeah. I, it got to the point where I, I knew exactly what stops I was going to stop at, you know, where I needed to gas. South Carolina was the cheapest gas. So I was like, all right, well, I'm stopping in South Carolina, you know, before I get home, you know, just and then I knew the right restaurants, the right stops. Uh, but I maximized all my time, listened to a lot of podcasts or, or ebooks you know, as, as I drove to and from to see my family and spend every every moment I could with them. That gave them the stability in Florida, especially that two year stint where you were gone most of the time. So it was like uprooting your family and then having them and then being like, see you later. I got to go work. It added a lot of stability for them. Yeah. And that was one of the main reasons we, we picked you about the first time is because I knew I was going to be gone 20 out of 24 months. So why uproot my wife? Hey, I'm going to drop you in a place you know nobody. You know, they might get the spouses club, but sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're not. When instead you can be here, you're established. Everything's great. You know, so we chose for the first first round just to stay here. And then the second time I was going up to Norfolk, guess what? You know, my kid, my, my son's now going into high school. All right. So we don't want to uproot everything for him. Hey, I, this one's a lot easier. I'll be home a lot more often. You know, so we just chose to do that. And then, of course, I took my last command, uh, my retirement tour down in Jacksonville, retired out of here. Now I work at Bank of America and I am loving life. I can't I can't love it. And as you can see in my backyard, I'm. I'm... Well, yeah, that's so great because my kids are getting older. They're seven and five and we're like five or six years away from retirement. And I keep thinking like, oh, just one more move, <laughs> just one more move. And then and then we don't have to do that anymore because as the kids get older, it gets harder to move, especially for them and and I think for the parents, or at least for me. It was a lot harder to move when my son was five than when he was one because he just went with us and he didn't, he didn't really seem to care. And then the next time he was older, we had friends and saying goodbye, and it was hard. It's hard. And at those ages, you got to start incorporating them into the reasons why you're doing it. And you got to figure out how to make it an adventure. And and uh, I'll tell you that when I moved during flight school from, I went from Pensacola to San Antonio, Texas, back to Jacksonville. You know, when we moved to the apartments, my son was five, six years old at that time. And we turned an entire fort sleeping area from all the moving boxes. Like we made this create created this maze, and he was sleeping in the fort with his with the, with our dog and you know on a blanket. It was just the most adorable thing, and and we just you know tried to turn it into an adventure as much as possible. So uh, we didn't really talk about your transition out of the military, but what was your transition like? It sounds like you already had like firm roots in a community, and so you just transitioned over, and you love where you're living and that sort of thing. But did you have any struggle with the transition out of the military? Absolutely. I, I did struggle. And that was because I struggled with what a lot of veterans have, which is I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, everybody asked me, so what do you want to do? I was like, I don't know. Uh, I want to lead, lead people. I'm like, oh, great. I, I did the same excuses. Every every person leaving is, oh, I'm a leader. I want a leadership job. Then I found out there's no job title or, or placement for leadership. You're like, oh, great. That's, that's a soft skill. You know, what do you want to do? I wish I would have learned a lot of the things I know now early on because I told you I was at a hot, high op tempo command. I literally went on a short six week detachment, came home like a week later, I was in tap. Two weeks later, I was doing my retirement ceremony. The week after that, I was going to an onward opportunity uh, course. You know, so I was pretty much in terminal leave when I was doing my transition at least got got smart about it. 
I was working on stuff before. I made all the same mistakes everybody does where I applied to jobs with a bad resume, got no callbacks, got ghosted. But then as I learned through going through Onward Opportunity and, and an incredible program here in Jacksonville, Florida, that's trying to go national operation uniform. You know, I, I learned what I wanted to do, how to do it. And I gained the confidence in being able to apply and interview for what I, I found. And then how I landed Bank of America is the number one way every transitioning veteran should, networking. I joined Bank America through the Global Technology and Operations Military Development Program. It's a two-year internship where you spend one year in operations, one year in technology. And there's there's a small window for every year for people to get hired. You know, it's in the summertime. And what happens is they start interviewing people roughly between July and October, bring them on in either February of July the following year. So timing is huge. So if your timing's bad and you wait till like, oh, well, I'm just going to wait till it's June. I want a job now. Well, guess what? They already hired everybody last year for this year's job. So they're looking for next year's. And I found out about this because I had a friend five years before I retired, did the same program. I reached out to him. I was like, hey, man, you've been with Bank America for five, six years. You're a smart guy. Uh, you must, you, you obviously like this. So tell me about it. We had a great conversations. We were good friends. We, we, we had talked a little bit here and there beforehand. And he said, you know what? You're going to love it. Here's why you're going to love it. Let me introduce you to the recruiter. Once I met the recruiter, the rest is history. You know, I make a good impression. I learn through operational uniform how to do good interviews, you know, put all my skills to the test, pass all the interviews, got the job offer. You know, and a year and a half later, I'm, I'm still at Bank of America and loving it. Yeah. And networking is how we met because we met via LinkedIn and we're connected. And, and just today on the day that we're doing this interview, we were talking about continuing education and we're having a conversation back and forth on the internet and just networking within the military community can help you for your job or for life or just for everything. Yeah. And I've met so many amazing people through LinkedIn, like yourself uh, and like so many others, just by engaging, just by commenting on other people's posts. I'd never heard of you before, but then I saw this lady fighting for, for women and, and, you know, female veterans, you know, and telling their story, which is amazing because I tell people all the time, you know, you can't get over trauma or, or get over things unless you tell your story. And, and hearing those stories and actually sharing my, inspired me to share some of my own stories of everything looks like roses now, but there's a lot of bumps in the road to get where I'm at. Yeah, you, it's easy to look at the end point and not see the challenges and, and sidesteps and all, all the lessons learned that were required to get you to the point that you're at. I believe that everyone has a story to share and that we should share our stories. And, and this is my therapy <laughs> for my PTSD is my deployment for talking to people about their military experience and sharing their stories and empowering them. So, But hasn't, hasn't that helped you, though? Oh, yeah. And that's why I love this. We, you know, we're two veterans getting to talk. Uh, you know, we can speak the same language within reason, you know, and, and we can have relatable stories. Yeah, for sure. It's so easy to talk to veterans because there's so many commonalities and it doesn't matter if you're different branches, you know, it doesn't matter. Like there's so many differences and it doesn't change the fact that you can easily have a conversation. I really enjoyed learning about your time in the Navy and talking a little bit about your transition. And is there anything from your time in the military or up to now that we didn't cover that you want to talk about before I ask my last question? You know, the only thing I'd say is give advice is, you know, network, look for informational interviews, you know, reach out to people like Amanda, myself, we're always here to help. 
Yeah, and and that's that's the biggest stuff. But you know, just good advice. You know, and keep pushing and, and look for help. Yeah, ask for help when you need it, and then give it when people ask for you to give them help. Yeah. And so my last question is, what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? Oh, that is a great question. So for me, I'm a big advocate for women. I'm a big advocate that you should do anything you want to. And don't take the first no. Don't take the first closed door because a lot of times people will tell you no and they don't know the actual answer. They're just going off what somebody else told them. You know, ask for it in writing. Why can't I do this? You know, show me where it says I can't do it. And if it's written there, inquire to why it can't be changed. You know, amazing things are happening. Uh, we've got, you know, females that are now getting through ranger school, you know, the, in, in the Green Berets. You've got women on submarines, which which is one of the last, you know, ship hurdles. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's only a matter of time before we have our first Navy SEAL applicant, if not graduate. And I still remember back in the mid 80s when women were first allowed to become uh, pilots, you know, fighter pilots, especially. And now if you go, depending on what community you go to, like in the P3, P8 maritime patrol community in the Navy, it's easy to find 10, 15 percent of all the pilots and naval flight officers are, are females now. So if you have dreams, you have aspirations, you want to be an airline pilot, join the military as a pilot, and then and then follow on with that. The world's your oysters and don't ever stop. That's great advice. And it's so true. There's so many opportunities out there for women in the military and in the world. And it's just exciting to watch all these glass ceilings get broken. And if you believe it, you can do it. So just go do it. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you and to have you on the podcast. So, and for all your encouragement, it really makes me feel happy. So thank you. Oh, not a problem. It's my pleasure. And like I said, it's been a huge honor to be on your podcast, Amanda. This week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.